Good morning, everyone. We're so glad you're here with us this morning. We get to start the new year. We're starting a new sermon series in Romans, a new sermon series in Romans. So we're starting this new series today. Uh, you can make your way to that in the Bible, uh, to the book of Romans. Uh, we call them books uh, because really the Bible that we hold in our hand, it, it is a book, yes. And some of you are trying this year to read through Scripture this year. And you find it difficult at times because you're reading through this really large piece of work. And so at times you need to kind of keep in mind that when we talk about books of the Bible, uh, this, this, this thing that we hold in our hands is actually a library of books. And so when we talk about turning to the book of Romans and making our way to the book of Romans, we need to be reminded that Romans is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. And it finds its way into what we hold in our hands as what we call the book of Romans. It's a letter. Uh, many say it's the most influential letter ever written. The most influential document even ever written. It is the most important book of the New Testament. And so we're going to spend some time here and, and understand that this book has impacted more people than we could ever count. If we pulled out the phone book, you remember what a phone book is, right? And you turn your pages through the phone, you see lists and lists and lists of names. The book of Romans has affected people, lists and lists and lists of people. Let me give you a few. How many of you have heard of Augustine of Hippo or Augustine of Hippo? A few of you, okay. And that's all right. Uh, St. Augustine was uh, a man who was not uh, always uh, the bishop of Hippo or what is uh, modern-day Algeria. Uh, he started out as a man who was uh, the son of someone who had wealth and had austerity in the area. And so he was able to do whatever he wanted at any time that he wanted. And he ran his life in the way that he wanted to. And his mother uh, prayed for him that he would be gripped by the gospel. Some of you are mothers here today, and that is your story. You are here, your New Year's resolution, we ask, what is it that you are hoping for and praying for this year? You are praying for that child, that, that child who is on the run. And Augustine was a child on the run. And guess what got a hold of him? It was the book of Romans. That was in 400 A.D. Later, during the uh, later days of 1500, Martin Luther comes along. You don't have to be a church person to know who Martin Luther is. You've, you've heard of him because he's the leader, the instigator through the 95 Theses of the Protestant Reformation, which changes all of history. And he, even as a theologian and a teacher himself, acknowledges the fact that he himself wasn't really gripped with the gospel until he did what? He opened... Not first the book of Romans, he actually opened a letter that was written by Augustine of Hippo about the book of Romans. Opened up the book of Romans and God started to speak to him through that. John Wesley in 1700 AD, he, he reads a preface to the book of Romans written by, guess who, Martin Luther, and begins to dig into God's word, the book of Romans, and digs in there and realizes that he needs to make significant changes. And John Wesley and his brother are the leaders that instigate what we know now as the Wesleyan church, uh, the Methodist church, and much of the first great awakening, all coming from the book of Romans. You've heard of John Bunyan. John Bunyan is locked in a prison cell. And what does he start to read? But the book of Romans, it grips his heart and he sits down and begins to pen what we know now as Pilgrim's Progress. Because the book of Romans got a hold of his heart. If we can tell stories, we can continue on with guys like John Calvin, John Edwards, 
a modern day person would be John Piper. I don't know why they're all named John, but, but that's what we've got this morning. John Piper, if you're familiar with him, he spent 18 years at Bethlehem Baptist Church before he built up the courage to take on preaching the book of Romans. He began the book of Romans, the sermon series, on April 26, 1998. He preached the first sermon in the series. And Christmas Eve 2006, he preached the final sermon of the series. That's 18 years, folks. So we're beginning our sermon series this week. And we'll finish somewhere around Christmas Eve 2037. Some of you aren't going to make it. Look to your right and left and you say, I don't know if you're going to make it. We're not going to spend that much time there, but I, I just, I'm, I'm building a case for why this is such an epic mountain to climb, if you will. And even audacious of us to think that we would be able to kind of tackle this. This is a very significant portion of Scripture. Some of you know that I dream, it's on my bucket list, of someday being able to ride across uh, our country on a bicycle. And I know that there's other people in here who have done it, and you guys like Dan, and that's nice. <laughs> He's been coaching me up, telling me that it's not as easy as it looks, and it's a really lot, and, and he won't be doing it again, and all those types of things. But man, I look forward to someday being able to do that. And I know that it's going to be difficult. And I know that even the riding itself isn't the hardest part. It's the logistics of putting it all together. And many of you were here when Dan did it. And that was great. You were part of that story of putting all of those pieces together of what he accomplished. And that's great. But it doesn't mean that you don't start. And I want you to keep me accountable over the next 5, 10, 25 years, whatever it turns out to be, that one day I do really want to ride my bike across this country. And in the same way, you can keep us accountable that we really are going to take this book of Romans and we're going to do our very best to go through, maybe not word by word, but at least verse by verse and chapter by chapter to make our way through this piece of work, this, this liter literature that is going to really drive much of what the church does and how we behave. So turn today in the book of Romans. Turn today to the book of Romans. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, it's a New International Version, and so it's simplest for all of us to kind of work together. So we're going to be in the New International Version today. Uh, that's on page 1177 in that black Pew Bible if you're having trouble finding it. If you were here last week, uh, you got a little bit of a jump start. So many of you were here last week. Kevin Walker was here with us, and, and he looked back uh, on our, our series that we just finished. was called uh, Tis the Season, and we said this is the season of reflection. And so he actually looked at the book of Romans from a reflection back of Paul sitting down, looking at what his life had become, looking at what God had been teaching him, and writing out this letter to the Romans uh, of really what he had experienced the gospel to do in his life. And so that was where we were last week. And so if you were here last week, you've got a little bit of a jump start on the rest of the people in the room. But as we, as we look at that, Paul, the author, he, he is writing a letter to people that he has not actually ever been with. He knew a few of them. Priscilla and Aquila, he knew personally, and, and there was a few others that he knew, but this was different than his other letters. So he writes a letter to Timothy. We know that now as 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. He's writing a letter to a person. Uh, he writes a letter, 1 and 2 Corinthians. Those are two different letters that he writes to the church in Corinth, the church that he started and founded. 
This church in Rome, uh, he has never been there. He's never been with these people, and he's not sure how long it'll take for him to get there, and so he wants to write this letter to them to make sure that they get the full scope of what's going on. And so many people call this, just like there is the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke. This is actually the Gospel of Paul. This is the way that he sees the life of Jesus lived out in our everyday lives. And so this is the Gospel that Paul wrote. And what Jesus did and how he lived and what are the ramifications for you and for me. The Gospel means, it literally means what? The good news. But for us, we want to even take it a little bit farther than that and say the gospel is not just the good news, it is the very best news that you will ever hear. Not only the good news, it's not just nice to read and encouraging to read, this is literally the very best news that you will ever hear. In a world filled primarily with bad news, you don't have to look very far, and you can call it fake news or you can call it ugly news, whatever you want, but it is bad news. And this is the best news you will ever hear. And so my hope is that as you learn about this good news, as you, as you listen to it, as you live it and you discover it or you rediscover it, you would discover the power of the gospel lived out, that it would motivate you to experience the gospel and it would motivate you to go out and share the good news. Because if it's good news, it needs to be shared. Good news by its very nature ought to be shared. We want to share good news. The gospel's often misunderstood. Not only outside of the church, but inside of the church. The gospel's often misunderstood. And not only the gospel, but Christianity as a whole. Uh, because Christianity is really the expression of the gospel. That's, the gospel is what we learn and what we know to be the good news, and Christianity is how we live it out in everyday life. And so you'd ask people all about what do they think of Christianity or what do they think of the gospel, you would get a litany of different answers. Just looking around and, and seeing what people would, would, would look at and see what they have seen you live your life, my, me live my life, they would have a whole different range of answers. And so I'm going to show you this video this morning. This is James River Church in Springfield, Missouri. They literally went out and asked this question of the essence of Christianity. Hey, James River Hunter here in downtown Springfield tonight at First Friday Art Walk. We are going around asking all sorts of people the question, what is the essence of Christianity? I really believe Christianity is about love. Non-judgment, which means loving everyone. Trying to be a fully rounded person good ethics. It's a book and it is full of stories. I mean, I would say it's definitely a relationship. You can't have Christianity without, I mean, there's the Bible, so there's a whole bunch of like legalities that come with it. Trying to spread the message of Jesus and his teachings. Christianity is more of a lifestyle and a relationship than more of like laws. Something along the lines of love your neighbor as yourself. I really break it down to a one-on-one -on -one relationship with Jesus. You're supposed to love everybody and you're not supposed to judge them and they make their own life choices, I make my own life choices. I don't push my beliefs on them, they don't push their beliefs on me, we all get along and that's how it's supposed to be. That's how it's supposed to be, she says. So, as I said, you could go and you could ask a lot of different questions to people, and you would get a lot of different answers of what is Christianity or what is the essence of Christianity. 
But what you see here, as you go through, you get the variety of notes. I want you to notice really what people are giving is a, as a list, list of rules or a list of ways to live. And even and good ways to live, too. And so what you're really getting when you listen to that video, listen to those responses, and many of the responses you hear is not the good news. It's good advice. Love others. It's good advice. Live your life. Love others. Don't mess with people. Don't make them angry. And, and things will work out okay. That, that's, that's good news. I, I mean, I'm sorry. That's good advice, but that's not good news. Be a good person. Do your very best to live this day better than the day before. That, that's good advice, but that is not the good news. If you're looking this morning, here's a, a fill-in. Uh, this is not a fill-in for you. This is one I added after we've already printed. But this is how it goes. This is from Tim Keller. Good advice helps determine what you should do. Good news reports what was done for you. Good advice helps determine what you should do. You may be coming this morning and you're hoping for some good advice on how to live out the new year. And I'm telling you, you might hear some good advice this morning, but really what I want you to hear is good news. Good news reports what has already been done for you. The gospel isn't good advice. It's good news. It's life-changing, eternity-changing, spirit-changing, family-changing, church-changing, and revitalizing and developing. It is literally the best news you have ever heard. That is the good news. The thesis of this letter, we're not going to quite get there this morning, but I want you to hear it. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I am not ashamed of the gospel. And this is where Paul is going to build all of what we're going to spend the next 18 years together. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The good news, let me tell you about it. Let me tell you about it. So let's begin. Would you stand? We're going to open up right there. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. This is the introduction that we get from the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Here we go. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who was as his, to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his namesake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word this morning as we dig in to uh, what has been said to be one of the greatest letters ever written. Lord, I pray that we would uh, spend time here, Lord, but it would not only be a good uh, reading exercise, a good instructional exercise, Lord, but it would be a life-changing, life-revitalizing journey. We begin together with that today. We thank you for, in advance for what you're going to do here. In Jesus' name, amen. You might be seated. So Paul is using an introduction that is common to letters that are written of that time. And so uh, this includes at the top of the letter is the name of the sender, 
and the name of the recipient and then the letter to follow. This is not the way we write letters today. Uh, if any of you are English teachers and you're teaching someone how to write a formal letter, this is not how we write letters or send emails. But it actually makes a lot more sense than what we do. <laughs> why, do we, why do we send someone a letter and the first thing we write on it is their name? They just got the letter. They know that it's for them. It, they received the letter. But instead, this is saying, I, Paul, because sometimes you want to know who the letter came from. And as you uh, open up your emails, you might look at the bottom or look at the, re the recipient. Uh, you're the recipient, the sender. You're trying to figure out who that was. Uh, you're trying to figure out whether this is an important thing to read. So they put it right at the top. So my name is Paul, and this is the letter that I'm sending to you today. And so if you're following along in your outline, I've got one in, in your bulletin this morning. The first fill-in that I have for you today, as Paul opens his letters, he describes who it's from. He wants people to get this uh, essence of what is coming here. The gospel is from God. The gospel is from God. Let's look back there at, at verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. This is not something that Paul came up with. Many of the greatest ideas of our generation and generations previous were thought up in the shower in the morning, right? Paul was not taking a shower and, and thinking through the day and thinking, you know what? I could really sell this thing, the gospel. No, he says, this is not something I fabricated. This is not something me and my buddies got together and wrote up. This is the gospel from God. He is in charge. He is in control. He is omniscient, meaning he knows all and, and, and can see all things. He is in control, and it is he who gives us this good news. In fact, in this gospel of Paul... He mentions God's name 144 times. He's, this is all about God. He wants to make sure that we are learning the essence of God's character. Our theology is being built about God. There's something, and you've heard me use this illustration before, but I think it's a great one, is, is cat theology or dog theology. Have you heard this before? If you've been here for a while, you probably have. So, so dog theology, because I put it on this side. So dog theology, I have a dog, and every day I feed that dog, and I, I take care of the dog and make sure that uh, it has a bed to sleep in at night, and it looks back at me and says, wow, you must be God. If you have a cat, and I will start praying for you after the service this morning, if you do, you have a cat, and you feed that cat every day, you take out the litter box. You take care of that cat in every way possible. You make sure that that cat is pampered and feeling good. And the cat looks back at you and says, wow, I must be God. <laughs> and when we look at the Scripture, and we look at the New Testament particularly, we can look at it with this lens that says, look what God did for me. He loves me so much. But Paul, before he does anything else, wants to set the foundation. He wants to build this thing correctly to say, this is a gospel about God. My name is Paul, and I am a slave. I am a servant of God. The next fill-in goes like this. What you have done doesn't determine who you will be. 
What you have done doesn't determine who you will be. If you know your church history at all, and it's okay if you don't, but the, the Apostle Paul was first called Saul. And Saul's job was to go out and hunt down those who called Christ Savior and Lord and murder them, throw them into jail, make sure that they were silenced, that this uprising that we know now as Christianity would be no longer. And he was going to do all that he could to stop that from happening. That is the background of the Apostle Paul. So this man's name was Saul. And just like many people in that tradition did, that something significant happened in their life, that God spoke into their life. He said, I'm no longer going to be called Saul, but I'm going to be called Paul. But what you have done doesn't determine who you will be. Why? Because the gospel is not about you. The gospel is about God. Paul starts and he says, I am a servant. Or some of your translations will say, I am a bond slave. I am a slave to God. What rights do a slave have? What decision-making power does a slave have? None. None whatsoever. And in this time, there in Rome specifically, where he's sending this letter off to, there was more than a million slaves living there in Rome. Because every time the Roman rule would take over a people, they would make those people slaves back in Rome. And so they would bring them back in chains, and now they knew their place in the kingdom. They would always be slaves to Rome. He said, I am not a slave to Rome. I'm a Roman citizen, but I am a slave to who? To God. What does that mean? It means he doesn't have a choice in the matter. Later in the book, he'll say, I used to be a slave to sin. Sin used to make me make decisions and tell me what I have to do. And just so your theology is correct, he he still sins. Paul still sins, and you and I still sin, but we are making a choice to sin. We are not a slave to sin. He says, I am a slave. I serve God Almighty. He calls himself Paul the Apostle. What he had done in the past would certainly eliminate him from any usefulness in God's kingdom, wouldn't it? It would not seem that he would be a useful person in this thing called Christianity that was beginning to sweep through Rome. But instead, God used him to write more than half of what we know today as the New Testament books. Why? Because what you have done does not determine who you will be. Some of you came in here this morning thinking about what you are doing or or what has happened to you or what you have done defines you. I am a single mom. I am a divorced dad. I am a workaholic. I am an outsider. I am, you start filling in the blanks, I am a college dropout. I am an alcoholic. I am an addict. I am a convict. All of these things do not define who you are. The gospel says God defines who you are. Paul says here, he says, I'm called to be set out. I'm called to be separated. A lot of times we we use that set out or separated terms to think that there's, there's something that we're missing out on. I'm being pulled away, but no. He says, I am being pulled out because I am being set aside for something spectacular. And some of you are being set aside All of us, if we are followers of Christ, set aside, separated to the gospel, how can he have that mindset? 
what he had done, the murdering, thief, criminal personality that he was, organized crime boss, would not determine who he would be. What you have done does not determine who you will be. The gospel is from God. Why? Second fill in. The gospel is about Jesus. The gospel is about Jesus. Verse 2, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his what? His son Jesus, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the center of the good news. Jesus is the center of the good news. As you sit there each week, as you come each week into this congregation and you worship together with us, you should not miss the fact that behind me at the center of the room, the attention is focused forward to what? The cross. Because Jesus is at the center of the gospel. Jesus Christ, Paul says, is our, and he uses this word, Lord. This was not an afterthought. He makes an argument here. He says, this wasn't plan B. Used in the case that if, if humans didn't follow through with their part of this and they'd run out of options to please God, that this was going to be plan B. No, no, no. Before the Christmas story ever began, this was the plan. Before the creation story ever began, this was the plan. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was going to be the propitiation is the word that we find elsewhere, or the substitute, or, or the reason that we, we're able to exist any longer, because he is, the, he is standing in for us. Jesus asked his disciples in Matthew, says, but who do you say that I am? This is the crucial question. Jesus is at the center of the gospel. My wife and I met in high school and, and she was not a believer at the time. And we started, we went out on a few casual dates. And we kind of did, you know, we're in high school. So we like passed the note back and forth type of thing of like, how serious is this? I don't know. How serious is this? Type of thing. And somewhere along the way, I told her, I said, I don't think this is going to be very serious because you're not a Christian. You're not a believer. You're not a follower of Christ. And her answer to me, which made sense at the time, she said, I, I have other friends whose family go to church. So because you go to church, I understand your family probably wouldn't allow this to happen, so be it. And that was for me, this very question that's being asked in Scripture was asked to me through the voice of a 15, 16-year-old gal to be able to look back and say, that's who your family says that Jesus is, but who do you say that he is? Who do you say that I am? And I don't know when that point came in your life or if it was that clear, clearly articulated as it was for me, but there's a point in your life where this has all just been games. This has all been a, a, a facade, a story, a, a group of people that you hang out with. But at some point, and maybe it's this morning, the gospel addresses the question, who do you say that he is? Because the gospel is about Jesus. And he is at the center of the gospel. And Paul shows three things here about Jesus. He shows that he is God's eternal son. He was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. And he is now resurrected and exalted to the place of power and glory. 
The gospel is always about Jesus, and it was always his plan. And just like it was not an afterthought, you are not an afterthought either. Understand that, that you were always part of his plan as well. I believe that you are here this morning because God had ordained for me to, to pick my way through this book and find our way and just, just push through so you could hear today the gospel being articulated from the voice of Paul through this book, Romans, that Jesus is at the center of the gospel. You're not an afterthought. Here's your fill-in. What you cannot change doesn't determine what he's already corrected. What you cannot change doesn't determine what he's already corrected. What do I mean by that? If you look here, there's a lot of time that is being taken to demonstrate that he was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. He is speaking to the audience there in Rome because uh, many of the Jews would spend time and time and time going through to find where their lineage went because they wanted to make sure that they are connected to this royal lineage of the coming Messiah. That's why when we open the New Testament, the, the Gospel of Matthew starts that way with the royal lineage. It, it sets it there because that was the hook. That was the attention getter to make sure that people paid attention. Because if Jesus was in the line of the lineage of the Messiah, then there's something important to be said there. That also means that if you are not part of that lineage and you're not part of that line, now what? Now what are you supposed to do? Ancestry.com. Many people are getting interested in this. Going back through and finding out the lineage of your family. Finding out that you are connected to. In the commercials, you see them. I, I, I got on and I, I, I logged in my information. And I gave them my social security card and all of my money. And then they told me that I was related to George Washington. Oh, yeah. And people want to make this connection as, as low as the percentage might be to say, I have a part of human history because of my connection. And some of you are, and that's fantastic. But some of you aren't. And so what does that mean? That means that the world tells you, you know what, of all these people, ancestry, all these people that have looked at their ancestry, there's the small percentage of people, and you're one of them who is a nobody. What am I supposed to do with that? Where am I supposed to go with that? It's made it crystal clear. Now you've got a website that demonstrates that you're not related to anybody. That's bad news. <laughs> Here's the good news. Jesus has already corrected the problem. And you couldn't do anything about it. You can't change that storyline no matter how hard you try. And the Jews that are there in Rome and they're reading this letter, there was nothing they could do about the fact that they are not in that royal lineage line. But Jesus has already corrected the problem. Why? The gospel is not about you. The gospel is all about Jesus. The gospel is from God. The gospel is about Jesus. Thirdly, the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. Verse 5. Through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles, or some of your translations will say all the nations, to the obedience that comes from faith for his namesake. And you also are among those Gentiles, or among the nations, who are being called to belong to Christ Jesus. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father, circle that, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Paul reminds his readers, and he reminds us this morning, that he is not writing only to a certain group of people. He reminds us that this gospel is not only for the apostles with a capital A, the, the 13 apostles that we know of, but for all of the apostles, all of the sent ones, a small a. That means every believer. And then he uses at the end of here, he calls them saints. All believers, the Gentiles even, or all nations. He's saying the gospel goes to all nations and makes them saints. This is another term for Christians. Having a basic meaning and, and a group of believers, this word in the New Testament is always plural, which means we're always talking about a group of believers. These are the saints that have devoted themselves to God and to the teachings of Jesus Christ, not a specific individual. It does not refer to a primary moral behavior, but no, it refers to, uh, or their saintliness, if you will, but it refers to the fact that they belong to God's family. The Roman Catholic Church, if you are coming from that background, they make absolutely sure that you are totally and entirely dead before you become a saint. And they're going to go through, and, and, and they'll go through the process to make sure that you have lived your life in a very saintly manner, to make sure that there are, are no skeletons in the closet, if you will. And, and that's, this goes in the face of that entirely. Because what happens here is he says, you don't, it's, it's works-based. It means you live a great life, then you can become a saint. And what Paul is saying is that we actually believe that in Christ, you and I are saints now. It's called the priesthood of the believer. Meaning that we have the same access to God as one another and the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter the Apostle Luke, any of these men who, who seem to know God in such a rich and personal way, he says you can know him that way too because you are called to the nations as an apostle. And he's saying, I am equipping you and sending you. What is the, great, what is the purpose that we receive this grace and apostleship? It says to go to all the nations. Here's a church we use a mission statement that says we glorify God by making disciples of what? Of all nations. That comes from the end of the Gospel of Matthew, but it, it speaks to it here as well. That we are being equipped. The Gospel equips us to go. And we love you. And we'd love to keep you here. But if something about going through this book of Romans shake something inside of you that's never been shook before, and you realize that I need to go to the nations, just like it's being described here, isn't that the very best thing that could happen? And going to the nations isn't the same as what we've always thought about it. In many ways, the nations have come here to Buffalo. And we use those words here again as a church. We call it presence, planting, and partnering because uh, there are ways that you can go by being right here and having a gospel presence right here. There are ways that you can go and plant other churches that are not that far away but are doing the things that speak the gospel into that community. And then there are some who just need to go very, very far away and reach nations who have never been reached before to be the sent ones, to be apostles, to be missionaries carrying what? The good news. The good news. 
Here's your next fill-in. Where you are right now doesn't determine where you'll end up. Where you are right now does not determine where you will end up. Where was the Apostle Paul when he is writing this letter? He is, most scholars believe, he is in Corinth. And what would he go through before reaching Rome? He is sending this letter to Rome. He's 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 penning it, making sure that all of it's it's a really well written letter. But he's sending it off to Rome, and his his desire is to go there, to be there with those people. Where you are right now doesn't determine where you'll end up. You see, the Apostle Paul didn't know that he was going to go through beatings. He didn't know that he was going to go through shipwreck. He didn't know that he was going to go through being bitten by snakes and every other form of worldly pain and suffering that you and I could imagine Paul is going to go through as he heads towards Rome. Where you are right now doesn't determine where you'll end up. See, many of you are looking at where you are right now and are thinking, this is it. God could have used me 20 years ago, but the decisions that I made 20 years ago are going to keep me from doing anything that God would send me out to do right now. The decisions that I've made or the situation that I'm in right now is beyond the scope of where I could do anything for God now. Or the sin that I walked into this room with this morning, the decisions that I made even today are going to keep me from doing God's work. Where you are right now does not have to determine where you will go. It's not about you. The gospel is about God. Where you are right now doesn't determine where you'll end up. How many of you have started a new gym membership this year? All right, we got a a wild bunch here this morning. Most of us don't think about when you start a new gym membership of how could I, what if I need to cancel this gym membership? How do I get out of it? And there are stories and stories of people trying to get out of membership plans where they are paying $200 a month so that they can go every other month one time. But that's how they get you. This time of year, you get your New Year's resolution, you start the new membership. And so getting out of a gym membership is difficult, but there are a few stories about gym memberships where the gym throws the person out of the gym says, we don't want you or your $200 a month. Get lost. Beat it. Sometimes it has to do with people who are just over-exercisers. The person who's in the corner of the gym is squatting, lifting weights, and they're just shouting and yelling and beating their chest the whole time that they're lifting. And, and eventually someone's like, you're making the patrons angry. <laughs> you have to leave. And then there's a number of other reasons why people get asked to to be pushed out of a gym membership. But here's one that was in the news a couple years ago, and you may remember this. This is in Georgetown. They made the news in May of 2017 by canceling the membership of Richard Spencer, a leader of the alt-right, a racist, anti-Semitic, xenophobic movement. He was identified by a Georgetown professor. The gym canceled his membership after a confrontation that was provoked by the professor. So how many stories have you heard about people being kicked out of a gym? Not that many. How many stories have you heard about people being kicked out of a church? You see, that's what makes the church different than the gym, or it's supposed to. 
I don't know this Dr. Fair, this Georgetown professor, but if she's a Christian, imagine this, that instead of being agitated and asking and fighting for his removal, what she does instead is invites him to church. Because that's a different type of membership. That's a different type of club. Of course, I'm not suggesting that Richard Spencer and all of the obscenities that he, he says, the views that he wishes to hold, I don't believe that we're entitled to whatever beliefs we wish to believe. I think that we believe in the one and true and holy God, and that's why we follow that, and we don't have to allow someone else to tramp all over that. So I'm not suggesting that he's entitled to his obnoxious views or minimizing the sort of evil person that he is or he is in public. He's racist. He's anti-Semitic, as I said. He's a nationalist, which is a form of idolatry. And given that string, he's a sexist, he's a homophobic. You just, you just keep adding to the list. He's exactly what this professor called him, a Nazi to boot. It's all true. It's all true. I can think of no one who fits this definition better. Richard Spencer is ungodly. He's ungodly. But Romans chapter 1, 5 through 7 says, the gospel is for everyone. Paul says it's exactly someone like him that Christ went to the cross. Christ didn't, didn't die on the cross to offer blessings to people who have a little smudge on their record, like you or me, or maybe you're not, maybe you've got a big blemish on your record, that's great. Christ didn't come for those who are pure, he says, I have come for the sick, for the vile. He died for the ungodly so they might become a new humanity. We've titled this series, The Beautiful Collision. The Beautiful Collision, where grace and wrath collide. It is at the cross, and you can do it on the corner of that, of that outline if you want. You just draw a cross. And you'll see there's an intersection between God's grace for all mankind that he has invited all through his son, Jesus Christ. He says, come to me. All you are weak, come to me, and I will give you rest. But he's very clear as well. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through my son, what? Jesus Christ. And there's this collision that happens. This car accident, this smashing that happens. And in the middle of it, we have the complexity of the glory God. Louis Giglio puts it this way, the gospel is not about going from bad to good, it's about going from dead to alive. The gospel is not going from bad to good, the gospel is about going from dead to alive. This is, that is the best news you have ever heard. Where you are right now does not determine where you'll end up. Where you are right now does not have to determine where you'll end up. And Paul is opening this letter, and we open it today, living in a world that is damaged and confused, and people who are broken and have blemishes that are large and, and, and wounds that are sore. Now, some of you have wounds that, it, it, it would be like having something on your, on your shin that if you just put a Band-Aid on it should get better but it's not getting better and it's been a year and it's been, been two years and now you've got this pussy thing that you haven't dealt with yet. And it's getting worse and it's festering. 
The gospel is not about going from bad to good. It's from going from dead to alive. You don't have to stay where you're at this morning. We'll be going into a time of communion here. And those who are helping with communion, you can come forward. Because when we go to the table, we are reminded of the great sacrifice that was made for you and for me. That is the essence of the gospel. But for many of you, what I'm sharing this morning, some of you are holding back a yawn. said, I've heard this before. I've been here before. I've read this before. I don't know if there's much here for me. And I pray that digging in here in Romans breaks that out of you and out of me. I told you at the beginning that I intend to go on a cross-country trip someday, bike across the country. About two years ago, we did a, a, a drive across the country. We flew out to California and drove back with family all the way across the country. My brother-in-law, we're seeing some of the sights. We come to this, it's just really hot day. We come to this lake. He just pulls over in front of us, pulls off to the side of the road. He sees this lake with a small beach. He jumps out of the car, sprints across the beach, takes off his shirt as he's running, and dives out into this beautiful water, which was seven inches deep. He stood up, and it wasn't even to his knees. Chest was all tore up from the gravel on the bottom. It was so hot because it was a drought. Water was, like if you look closely, water was way, way down. But you didn't see that at first. Some of you are looking at the Gospel of Romans. This what we're talking about here, the Gospel in Romans. And some of you are saying, I've been there before. Maybe you have, but what if you've only been ankle deep? And there's so much more for you there. The well is overflowing, and all you've done is got in ankle deep. God has so much for you and for me in this passage. So this morning, I pray that you would not see this as going from bad to good, but no, you would see it from being dead to alive. Some of you came in today, and you need to make the transition from death to life. And there's only one way we can do that, and that is through our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's why we come at least once a month to talk through communion. Because that is where he shared with his disciples. He said, after I do this, you'll be able to walk from death into life. Whenever we take the Lord's Supper or communion is another word that we use for this. Whenever we do that, we are reminded of the sacrifice he made on your behalf and mine. It's a time for us to evaluate our lives in light of a holy Savior. The gospel is about God. The gospel is about Jesus Christ. And it's for everyone. We must evaluate where we stand in that conversation. So in Paul's other letter to the Corinthians, he writes this, For I received from the Lord, I delivered to you the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed. He broke bread. And so we will start with that this morning. I ask you if you will take a time of reflection as the plates come back. It will be passed around and you take a plate, bread, and be able to really take a moment to be able to assess where you're standing today.